Good afternoon, and welcome to the pilot episode of the Live Poet Society, where we read aloud literature in real time and have a quick chat about it. I'm your host, Hattie Rensbury. Let's first start with some recent releases of literary publications from the past month. Uh, I checked these ones out from the New York Times list, but if you have better lists, please let me know. These were just a couple that I thought sounded really interesting um, and might even make it onto my own personal reading list. Okay, so the first one is The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell. She's also the author of Hamnet, which is a historical fiction novel about Shakespeare. Uh, and this one is about Lucrezia de Medici, uh, who was the daughter of a Grand Duke um, in the 1550s. So uh, the genre, of course, is historical fiction, um, and it is based around a portrait of Lucrezia from the era, um, which, according to the author, is the only portrait of this young woman. Um, and she was only... Uh, she was very young when she died. Um, so let me just read you real quick the description that's generally used by book vendors for this, and you can kind of decide for yourself if it's interesting or not. Florence, the 1550s. Lucrezia, third daughter of the Grand Duke, is comfortable with her obscure place in the palazzo. Free to wonder at its treasures, observe its clandestine workings, and devote herself to her own artistic pursuits. But when her older sister dies on the eve of her wedding to the ruler of Ferrara, Modena, and Reggio, Lucrezia is thrust unwittingly into the limelight. The duke is quick to request her hand in marriage, and her father just as quick to accept on her behalf. Now, historical fiction is one of those genres that's really not for everybody. Some people find it very dull. Some people, however, do find it rather enticing. Uh, some notable review headlines that I read today while looking at this book uh, included A Feast for the Senses plus Palace Intrigue and Malady or Murder in Renaissance Italy. Now, I don't know about you, but both of those sound like things that would definitely entice me to read this book. So feel free to do your research, read up on it if it sounds like something you might like. Um and maybe check in over at White River Books and see if they have it over there. They're great. The second one that interested me that came out this past month was called Two Nurses Smoking, a collection of stories by David Means. So as previously stated, this is a collection of short stories, which seems to be David Means's general approach towards writing and publishing. Uh, he has quite a few of these. Um, so let me read you the description real quick. Two nurses meet in the hospital parking lot to share a cigarette. They flirt and imagine a future together. They tell stories of patients lost and patients saved, of the darkest corners of human suffering, and the luminous moments that break through, even here in the shadow of death. Now, it's a pretty intense-sounding collection of stories, and again, this is not something I've read yet myself, but the benefit of short stories is the fact that they are easy to read one at a time, put the book down, go back to whatever you need to be doing, whether that's you're busy with family members or busy with work, 
it allows for that piecemeal reading time where you still get the full arc of the story. So very much a personal decision. This book has very few reviews so far. Um, I believe five on Amazon. So that's for you to decide on your own. His most popular publication is his other story collection called Assorted Fire Events, which I haven't really read much up on, but um, this is sort of his style. So the releases from this past month that you may be interested in are The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell and Two Nurses Smoking, Stories by David Means. As a note for the beginning of this episode, I do want to give a quick content warning because we will be discussing um, one author's opinions on slavery. We're not going to go into depth on them, but I did want to give you a heads up before we get started. Okay, so the name of this public affairs show is the Live Poet Society, and for anyone that's a fan of the 1989 movie, the Dead Poet Society, that is not an difficult jump to make. Um, it's a very popular film. Most people have seen it. I think it's considered a cult favorite at this point, starring Robin Williams, Ethan Hawke, and Robert Sean Leonard, if we're going to name a few of the cast members. It's funny, it's tragic, and it's become sort of a staple in the concept of dark academia aesthetic for a lot of people in the Gen Z crowd um, with that wonderful sort of collegiate look that a lot of people associate with that movie and with academia in general in film and television. So what we're going to do today is go through a few poems by poets who were mentioned in the film itself that maybe you wouldn't be as familiar with because the ones mentioned in the film are some of their most popular. Let's start with the man who's considered to be America's poet. And I can tell you that I saw this written in several different places during my research. This is something that a lot of people seem to agree upon is the fact that he is considered one of the most influential American poets. Um, and of course, if you aren't already screaming at your radio, I know who it is. It's Walt Whitman. You're right. It's Walt Whitman. <laughs> um, you've probably seen him. If you don't know who he is by his name, a cranky looking man with a big white beard in your English teacher's classroom. Um, his most famous poem is, Oh, Captain, My Captain, which many, many people associate that line now with the movie that we just talked about. Some notable other references about this poem or referenced lines from this poem can also be found in contemporary media, such as The Umbrella Academy, Mad Men, Silicon Valley, and Parks and Recreation. Now, you may need this as an excuse to do a rewatch, and I fully recommend that. So today, we're not going to talk about Oh, Captain, My Captain. It's very popular, but no. Today, we're going to talk about um, I Sing the Body Electric, which is one of his other popular poems. And we're only going to read the first stanza because it is very long and it is very in-depth. The entire poem has about nine sections, and... 
Whitman uses it to go in depth about the ties between the soul and the body. So I'll do the reading really quick, and then let's go a little bit further into the analyzation of this. I sing the body electric. The armies of those I love engirth me and I engirth them. They will not let me off till I go with them, respond to them, and discorrupt them, and charge them full with the charge of the soul. Was it doubted that those who corrupt their own bodies conceal themselves? And if those who defile the living are as bad as they who defile the dead, and if the body does not do fully as much as the soul, and if the body were not the soul, what is the soul? So, much of this poem is spent giving really in-depth descriptions of people, whether that be of their physical form or of their personalities. Um, it's really a visceral sort of language that can be really interesting to read if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, you know, Whitman takes that sort of opportunity to walk in the shoes of different individuals, and you can read it for yourself and decide whether or not he's successful. But it is rather um, varied, and he goes with different genders and different walks of life, so there's something to be said for that. Now, this poem also asks introspective questions of the reader about their views on others, their egos, and about what sort of prejudices that they may also harbor. These include discussion of slavery, sexism, and classism. This poem is generally considered to be pretty powerful to some people who are involved in literary groups, and it's provided a lot of inspiration, especially in music. Uh, and it's unsurprising because of the visceral imagery that Whitman uses to describe human beings. So some that you may already know or some that me, you may be familiar with but can't think of at the moment may include I Sing the Body Electric from the musical Fame uh, and this song that I'm using for the intro and outro of this episode is I Sing the Body Electric instrumental version by a band called Arms and Sleepers. A pop addition to this is Lana Del Rey's song from her album Born to Die. If you're familiar with Lana Del Rey, you'll know that this album was kind of a big deal. Um, and she actually chose to reference Whitman by name in the line, Whitman is my daddy, Monica's my mother, diamonds are my bestest friend. So... Not all of them reference Whitman directly, but she definitely did. So in Icing the Body Electric, he does describe the sale of a woman and a man at a slave auction. As Whitman was also someone who lived during the American Civil War, I would be remiss to not mention that although Whitman's writings mention slavery and race, some academics would consider him to be downright paradoxical. In a Clark Atlanta University paper published in 1974, a researcher writes that although Whitman may not have been a quote-unquote rabid racist, his overarching love for America may have only extended to white people. Whitman is sometimes referenced as someone who was less concerned with equality and more concerned with the morality overall of slavery or the economical impact of slavery. 
which is still forms of racism, but we can't really go into that all of that today. Um, but it would be, again, remiss if I didn't mention it. Um, overall opinions, academically and socially, seem to mention that as his life went on, Whitman seemed to become more racially sympathetic um, in regards to, like, utilizing more racially sympathetic terms from the mid-1800s. So there's something to be said to the fact that he was a product of his own time. <laughs> so just that as a warning as well. Um, but there was a shift in his belief systems. Martin Klammer writes in his article, Slavery and Abolitionism, about Whitman's midlife tone while referencing Section 7 of Icing the Body Electric. Examine these limbs, red, black, or white. Whitman says of the auctioned slave, figuring him as emblem of a multiracial body politic. The poem, I should mention, was originally published in 1855, prior to the Civil War, but only appeared in its current published form in 1867. And we're going to take a quick break. Listening to the Live Poet Society on KDNK. I'm your host, Hattie Rensbury. Now, do me a favor, real quick roll your shoulders back, relax your jaw, take a minute, a really deep breath, and then we will get right back into it. Okay, you ready? Next, we're moving on to Lord Byron. He's definitely not a surprise when talking about popular poets to analyze and definitely was a feature in the Dead Poet Society, the movie from 1989. His, his most famous poem was Don Juan, but another poem that was mentioned in the film is She Walks in Beauty, and I love this poem personally, so I'm going to read this for you, but we're not going to analyze it because ideally, if they give me another episode on here... <laughs> We'll do an entire episode on romantic poetry, okay? She walks in beauty like the night Of cloudless climes and starry skies And all that's best of dark and bright Meet in her aspect and her eyes Thus mellowed to that tender light Which heaven to gaudy day denies One shade the more, one ray the less Had half impaired the nameless grace which waves in every raven tress, or softly lightens o'er her face. Where thoughts serenely sweet express how pure, how dear their dwelling place. And on that cheek, 
and o'er that brow, so soft, so calm, yet eloquent, the smiles that win, the tints that glow, but tell of days in goodness spent, a mind at peace with all below, a heart whose love is innocent. Ah, I love that one. <laughs> but I am a softie for romantic poetry. I just love it. Uh, but that's not the one that we're going to be analyzing to today and talking about. Instead, we're going to be talking about his other poem, On the Castle of Chillon, published in 1816. It's a smaller part of a larger collection of poems and is sometimes listed as the prisoner of Chillon. It was written as a dramatic monologue and a hymn to liberty and... Although Byron wrote it 300 years after, you know, give or take, after the living entity had existed, it still brought a lot of fame and a lot of importance to this actual historical place. So let's do a really quick reading and then we'll talk about it. Eternal spirit of the chainless mind, Brightest in dungeons, liberty thou art, for there the habitation is the heart, the heart which love of thee alone can bind, and when thy sons to fetters are consigned, to fetters, and the damp vaults dayless gloom, their country conquers with their martyrdom, and freedom's fame finds wings on every wind. Chillon, thy prison is a holy place, and thy sad floor an altar, for twas trod, until his very steps have left a trace, worn as if thy cold pavement were a sod. By Bonivard, may none those marks efface, for they appeal from tyranny to God. Now, let's talk about this a little bit. The Chateau de Chillon sits at the very edge of Lake Geneva, perched atop a small, oval-shaped, rocky island its round towers and gray stones reflect into the nearby water with snowy Swiss peaks as this dramatic backdrop. It's stunning, to put it plainly. It's sometimes listed as Switzerland's most visited castle, and it's not difficult to see why. Although the castle's website notes that the site has been occupied since the Bronze Age, the structure has now taken on a new role as a heritage museum. They have a gallery that hosts art, artists of all kinds. There's restaurants available. And some of the banquet halls are often rented out as event spaces. And it even features a Cafe Byron, which I believe may be a cheeky nod to the fame afforded to the collection of buildings due to the poem written by Lord Byron. It's not really a jump. You're probably agreeing with me. A lot of people describe it as a walk back in time. It's so medieval in texture and tone. It's got these beautiful rough-hewn steps, leaded windows. Heck, even on one side, for fortification, there are slits for arrows to go through the walls. Now, on the other side that faces the lake, there's stunning windows where people generally would have had their bedrooms so they could look out and have that wonderful view the first thing in the morning. So, let's also talk about an interesting vocab word that we heard in that 
particular poem, Fetters. This one caught me a little off guard, and that's new for me. A fetter is a chain or manacle used to restrain a prisoner, we would say probably by the ankles. Um, So when he says, and when thy sons to fetters are consigned, he's talking about the sons of liberty, not in the sort of American way, but in the, you know, people who, quote unquote, fight for liberty, um, are put into manacles and left there. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. Bonnevard is mentioned in this poem, and that's who the poem's about. So Francois Bonnevard was a nobleman, a Protestant monk, a historian, and is sometimes cited as a patriot of the Republic of Geneva. So Byron wasn't entirely right on this guy, but again, they lived 300 years apart, so it's kind of hard to get everything right. Um, He was, in fact, imprisoned in Chilon for four to six years, given which account you read, um, due to his opposition towards the actions of Charles III, Duke of Savoy. The Savoy family owned the Chateau du Chilon at the time, um, and actually... Bonnevard was not freed until 1536, when it was taken over um, by the Bernese counts, who are also the ones that are cited as giving the castle new life after it was in desperate need of repair. So, you know, it worked out pretty well for everybody in the end, but I don't know how well it worked out for the Savoys. So start with that, I guess. Anyways, it's definitely one of those sort of landmarks that is worth visiting, as far as I can tell. Um, Not that I'm going to Switzerland anytime soon, but if you are, please let me know how it is. Um, Let's see, we've got a few more minutes, so we'll go real quick through the very last one. This last one is a Robert Frost poem, and um, thankfully I don't have a whole lot to cover for you. Uh, His most famous poem is The Road Not Taken. I'm not even going to reference that any further. I know you all read it in English class. Uh, This one that we're going to be reading today is Fire and Ice, which was published in 1920. It's supposedly one that inspired George R.R. Martin's A Song of Fire and Ice, as well as it's referenced in Stephanie Meyer's book Eclipse of the Twilight Saga. Yeah, I'm not making that up. So let's do a quick reading, do a really quick analyzation, and then we're done. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if I had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction ice is also great and would suffice. So... Generally, it's referred to that this passage was inspired by a portion of Dante's Inferno. Um, And I'll read this to you directly because it it explains it so well. In which the worst offenders of hell are submerged up to their necks in ice while in a fiery hell. So if you haven't read Dante's Inferno, um, you'll understand that the phrase when hell freezes over doesn't really apply to Dante Alighieri. If you don't know what I mean, please Please look at Dante's Inferno. Um, In some analyzations of this poem, fire and ice are recognized as personifications 
of very human feelings of hatred and desire, but some speculate that it could mean fire covers any passionate human emotions, and ice represents sort of an emotional coldness, like rigidity um, and sort of like an emotional stiffness when fire refers to love and hate and passion and anger. So it covers a lot of boundaries there. All right, I think we're wrapping up. Um, Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy the works of Frost, Byron, and Whitman. This has been the Live Poet Society on KDNK. And in the words of Robin Williams' character, John Keating, carpe diem. Seize the day this week, really. Any day. Come on, pick one. You've got quite a few to choose from. (laughs) And if you're still sticking around, next on my personal reading list is The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller, which is a retelling of the Iliad by Petrolicus, or Girl Waits with Gun by Amy Stewart, a novel based on the forgotten true story of one of the nation's first female deputy sheriffs.